It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 29, Denant Wars. Charles, the Count of Charolais, began to take a more dominant role in the Burgundian court after the forced reconciliation with his father, Philip the Good, in January 1464. By midway through the next year, Charles had ejected the pro-French members of the Duke's inner sanctum and was finally able to convince his father that it was time to check the French king Louis XI's expansion into the Burgundian realm. He was given command of his father's military, joined up with a bunch of French nobility, and went off to war in France in the so-called League of the Public Wheel. Charles and Louis would meet in an indecisive battle at Montlhéry in July 1465, and although both men would claim victory, the battle greatly enhanced Charles's reputation and earned him the moniker history would remember him by, Charles le Temeraire, Charles the Bold. Conflicting reports about the outcome of Montlhéry would reach the Low Countries, and after wrongly hearing that Charles had been slain, a rowdy mob in the town of Dinant, Liège, would hang an effigy of the Count and generally cause a ruckus by hurling outrageous insults about Charles's mother, Isabella. Not actually slain and fired up by this assault on his family's honour, Charles would then take his armies back into the Low Countries and eventually unleash such cruel vengeance on the town the people looking at its remains would say, Si fu Dinant. Dinant was. Charles the Bold was giving the people of the Low Countries a sneak peek, a preview into his style of leadership, and this new era would begin in June 1467 when Philip the Good would finally die. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's banquet-sized episode, we need to take out that big, heavy book which details our shortcomings and write a new entry into it as we correct an error in the chronology of events which made its way into episode 28, the previous in our series. When we were explaining the events which led up to the meeting of the Estates General in January 1464, we told you the story of the bastard of Ruben Pre, a French agent who had been caught at Chorincum, supposedly intending to kidnap Charles the Bold. Maybe I had inhaled too many paint fumes whilst frantically renovating my house in recent weeks, but in our telling, we made it sound like this happened in late 1463, before the meeting of the Estates General, when he was in fact arrested in September 1464, after that meeting. Whoops, our bad. As a token of apology, we humbly appear before you with our heads shorn, our feet bare, and adorned in white robes of deep penance, prostrating ourselves in front of you to beg your forgiveness. So, just to get things straight, after the meeting of the Estates General in January 1464, when Philip officially recognised Charles as the heir to his lands, the relationship between father and son began to improve, but despite the agreement, the Croy family maintained their dominant position at court for a little while longer, until the Rubempre affair brought Charles into the ascendancy. Philip was apparently rather unnerved by the brazenness which Louis XI had shown in sending the bastard of Rubempre, who was a relative of the Croys, 
into his lands to allegedly capture Charles, as well as by other rumours that Louis was planning on grabbing a bunch of Burgundian lands. When the French king sent an ambassador to Burgundy to try and talk the situation out of existence, Philip did something he had rarely done before and actually backed Charles against the accusations of disloyalty being thrown at him for an alliance he had formed with the Duke of Brittany. Comines tells us that Philip ended the meeting, quote, beseeching his majesty to preserve him in his favour and that he would not easily entertain an ill opinion of him and his son, end quote. As you might well remember, if you didn't consume too much beer, listening to our bonus episode on the history of beer in the Low Countries, as the group of French ambassadors were leaving, Charles apparently told one of them, the Bishop of Narbonne, quote, My most humble respects to the king, and let him know that he has handled me very roughly by his chancellor, but before the year is at an end, his majesty may have reason to repent it, end quote. It was from this moment on that Charles took the mantle of top dog in the Burgundian court, and within six months of the affair, by March 1465, he had forced the Croys and their allies out of the Burgundian sphere of power, and they all fled to France. With the Croys out of the picture, the stage was now set for that long-awaited showdown between France and Burgundy. Charles set about taking steps to ensure his position and to fulfil that threat he had made via the Bishop of Narbonne to make King Louis repent ever crossing him. On top of the alliance which he had earlier arranged with Brittany, Charles sealed alliances with other leading French nobles as well as German ones such as the Duke of Cleves and the Duke of Bavaria, the Elector Palatine, and then also with the King of Scotland. In April 1465, Charles took charge of the Burgundian military, styling himself as his father's lieutenant general. Over the next few months, he also arranged deals with the various estates throughout the Low Countries, which ensured that he would respect their existing privileges in exchange for them not causing any issues when he ascended to official rule after Philip's death. The estates general formally recognized him as Philip's heir, on April 27, 1465, dotting the I's and crossing the T's on the final resolution of the issue in which they had intervened over a year earlier and which had marked the relationship between the ducal father and the commutal son for so long. Although Duke Philip himself remained officially in charge of the Burgundian states and would do so until his death in 1467, in these final years it was Count Charles who was doing the real moving and shaking on behalf of his father who was growing older and weaker. What Charles really needed now was an opportunity to assert himself on the larger stage of wider European politics. And conveniently for him, the first opportunity which presented itself was a chance for him to drive a dagger into the heart of France and his now arch-rival, Louis XI. We don't want to get too deeply into this because, as you know, as we keep saying despite how it might seem at some points, we are trying to tell the history of the Netherlands, not the history of French squabbles. With that being said, item, when Louis XI ascended to the throne in France, he stepped on the toes of a bunch of the leading nobility in France, in much the same way that he had insulted the honour of Charles the Bold. Remember that France was still emerging from the end of the Hundred Years' War, and many of the larger regions and their rulers had grown used to certain amounts of independence from the monarch. Louis wasn't keen on respecting any of this independence, and he intervened in affairs in those local regions, hiring and firing officials, claiming lands as his own, cutting off funding to some of them, and even, shock horror, banning hunting in France. If you want to veer clear of noble sneers and jeers, don't interfere with their endearment to deer. What resulted was a coalition of annoyed nobles who gathered together to form La Ligue des Publics Biens, or as it's known in English, the League of the Public Wheel. This was in total opposition to King Louis XI. 
It's a rather lofty name and indeed in correspondence between members of this alliance and with the people and towns of France, they insisted that this rebellion was to be for the good of the poor people. Though from what we can see, it really wasn't. Included in this group was a who's who of the French upper crust, including among others the king's own brother, Charles, Duke of Berry, as well as the Dukes of Bourbon, Brittany, Lorraine, Cleves, the Counts of Armagnac, Saint-Paul, Damartin, Dunois, and of course, our friend Charles, the Count of Charolais and now de facto ruler of Burgundy. When Charles took over the military, he immediately began mobilizing his armies to take part in this combined effort to cut the French king's ambitions down to size. His most pressing aim in all of this was to get back those regions which his father had foolishly, in his mind, sold back to Louis just a couple of years earlier, Picardy and the Somme towns. Louis had added insult to injury when he took over those regions by appointing a guy called John II, the Count of Nevers, to be the captain of Picardy. If you remember back, when John the Fearless and Anton of Burgundy had taken the good bits of Philip the Bold's lands and then given the leftover title of Count of Nevers to their younger brother Philip, well, this John was his son, and he was probably sick of the now generations-old hand-me-down lands he'd ended up with. He actually had dubious claims to the Burgundian title of Duke of Brabant, which he had tried to press after the breakdown in the relationship between Charles and Philip. Charles had kicked John out of the Burgundian court at the same time as he had told the Croys where to go. As you can imagine, Charles really didn't like having this distant cousin once removed of his who had already tried to claim titles that he saw as his by right, the Duchy of Brabant, now being given control of these lands which Charles also saw as having been stolen from the sum of his inheritance. So this conflict between the French king and the nobility of France and Burgundy began in May and June with a confrontation between Louis XI and the Bourbonnais in an area a couple of hundred miles south of Paris. Charles, for his part, got his knights, soldiers, horses and artillery ready and decided that instead of going to help his new allies in their fight against the king, he would first go and occupy those long-fought towns of the Somme. After doing this, he chilled out for a couple of weeks before remembering about <laughs> the public wheel he was supposedly fighting for and went off to try and meet up with the Dukes of Berry and Brittany in order to take Paris. Charles made it to Saint-Denis on the northern outskirts of Paris, but his allies weren't there yet. Shaking off the concerns of his men, he agreed with those Dukes through correspondence that they were having that they should instead meet up at Etampes south of Paris, and then go and fight Louis together. It wasn't exactly the smartest tactical move he could make, considering he would have to cross the Seine River, which would leave his army in a pretty sticky situation if things were to go awry. Nevertheless, over the river they went, heading for Etampes. As it would turn out, Charles wasn't going to be able to link up with his allies, since King Louis and his army were actually smack bang in between them, as they themselves hurried to get back to Paris. What eventuated was the Battle of Montlhéry on July the 16th, 1465, where finally, after almost 10 years of tension building up between them personally, Louis XI and Charles would clash. 30 years after the signing of the Treaty of Arras, Burgundian troops would once again meet the forces of the French king, on the battlefield. It's France versus Burgundy, the rematch. The details of the Battle of Montlhéry are confusing due to conflicting accounts. The battle took place on a scorching hot summer day in the middle of a wheat field, which would become a dust bowl throughout the fight. Louis was in a stronger defensive position, though his troops were outnumbered by Charles's, 14,000 to 25,000. Both Charles and Louis were evidently in the thick of the action. At one point, Louis fell off his horse after it was slain by the bastard of Burgundy, Charles's brother Anthony, and he was almost killed until some of his archers rallied and saved him. Charles himself received multiple wounds, including at one point getting stabbed in the neck by a sword before being rescued. 
Despite what one would assume was a rather serious injury, I don't know anybody who would brush off being stabbed in the neck, Charles got himself bandaged up and then quickly returned to the fight. As the day turned to night, the two sides disengaged and Charles' army camped on the battlefield. The casualties have been heavy on both sides, each losing at least 2,000 men, though according to Philip de Comines, the Burgundians lost significantly more than the French. The night was spent with Charles anxiously taking counsel from his advisors, many of whom suggested retreating from this precarious situation which they had thrown themselves recklessly into. But when dawn broke the next morning, Charles was delighted to discover that the king, his advisors, and his army had had the same genius idea and had already left the scene during the night. Charles had taken on the might of the army of the King of France without any support from his allies, and although the battle had not been conclusive, he had, at least in his mind, come out victorious. Philip de Comines, who I'll remind you was a Burgundian herald at the time, says of Charles and this battle that, quote, whereas before he was altogether averse and unfit for the war and took delight in nothing that belonged to it, his thoughts were so strangely altered upon this that he spent the remainder of his life in wars, end quote. He goes on to say that, quote, in short, his designs and enterprises were always so bold and daring that nothing less than an almighty power was able to accomplish them, being far beyond the reach of human capacity to do it, end quote. It was from this moment that Charles acquired the epithet by which history would remember him, the bold. Though perhaps a more accurate English translation of the French le temeraire would be the rash. Pro-life tip, next time you have a spot of eczema, Try to come to terms with it by calling it Charles the Rash. In the aftermath of the Battle of Montmery, Louis was able to escape to Paris, where he ensconced himself for a while and talked his way into the good books of people in his capital city, while Charles, meanwhile, was finally able to link up with some of his allies, the Dukes of Brittany and Berry. According to Richard Vaughan, quote, A week later, on 27th of July, he proudly set out his artillery at Etampes and fired it all off twice for the benefit of the Dukes of Berry and Brittany. He had created an image of invincible military power, which was to impress his allies and overawe the king in the months to come. End quote. So although Charles hadn't really beaten Louis, his victory at Montlhery, victory in air quotes, had served him in a way which always suited Burgundian Dukes. It had massively enhanced his reputation, and he became seen as the leader and the driving force of the entire rebellion. Whereas his father Philip might have projected an image of princely benevolence, Charles seems to have been more inclined to foster an image of himself as the conquering military hero. A bit like that famous and ancient one he had read and heard so much about as a child, Alexander the Great. Be all that as it may. Even with their powers combined, there was basically no way the League of the Public Wheel were going to be able to take such a huge and well-defended city as Paris from Louis. Over the next few months, the Allied armies besieged the city, setting up outside the town with a few minor skirmishes and a lot of plundering of the countryside. On one gloomy day, a group of Allied scouts thought that they saw the population of Paris coming out to face them armed with lances and so the armies set up to prepare to fight, only to discover after some time and once the weather had cleared that the lances they had seen and got in formation to defend against were, in fact, thistles. That's embarrassing. By the end of September, the entire affair was over, with Louis deciding that the best tactic for himself was to not negotiate with all the Allies at once, but rather to agree separate peace treaties with each of them. This worked out well for the rebellious nobles since the siege had apparently been on the brink of collapse anyway due to their own internal rivalries. I know, big surprise. Like I said, the history of French squabbles. It also worked out well for Louis since he had absolutely no intention of giving into any grand plans for the reorganization of his kingdom in pursuit of the public will. 
He made a bunch of smaller concessions to these nobles, which he never planned on actually respecting, and this suited him very well. Thank you very much. Fortunately for us, the terms that we really care about are the ones which he agreed on with Charles in what became known as the Treaty of Conflans. Before we go on, a quick note on one of our sources. We have been using the Chronicles of Enguerrand de Monstrelet a lot during this period of low country history. We will continue to do so. However, the astute and informed listener will note that Monstrelet died in 1453, and we are well past that moment by now, thankfully. Monstrelet had deliberately attempted to continue the work of Froissart, and would himself inspire others to do the same, Descouchy being one who would follow him. The Chronicles of Enguerrand de Monstrelet, however, do not end with the death of Monstrelet, but carry on until 1467, which we will get to in this episode. The author, therefore, of the last third of the Chronicles is completely anonymous. We can make no statement on their character, their experience, their closeness to events. They are, however, extremely pro-Burgundian. When we cite the Chronicles, therefore, we will still just say Monstrelet, even though it is not Monstrelet. And we will keep in mind that there was probably a different agenda in their construction than what Monstrelet had begun with. Charles the now bold had been posted in Conflans, northwest of Paris, while that city was put to siege. One day, under the protection of about 20 men, Louis XI made his way there via the Seine. Monstrelet, being the chronicles of Monstrelet but not being Monstrelet, tells us that the king and the count greeted each other on the riverbank, quote, like old and loving friends, end quote. A series of unknown conversations passed between them, and following Louis's departure back to Paris, correspondence that Charles then made to his father Philip in Brussels suggests that he was encouraged by the king's attitude and entreaties to put their conflict behind them. Apparently, Louis had even invited Charles to visit him in Paris. Charles politely declined, citing a vow he had made not to enter any large city until his job on this military operation was completed. That Charles would have grown up with and been intimately familiar with the history of Burgundian dukes and French nobles assassinating each other in public, such as what had happened to his grandfather John the Fearless, one suspects that he did not see such a visit to Louis as being good for his long-term health prospects. Nonetheless, it would seem that the French king was truly trying to placate Charles, and indeed flattered him by recognising him as a true French prince. Philip de Comines tells us that Louis said to Charles, and in this quote, Morvilliers is the French king's ambassador that he sent to talk to Philip and Charles. Quote, When I sent my ambassadors lately to Lille to wait on your father and yourself, and that fool Morvilliers talked so saucily to you, you sent me word by the Archbishop of Narbonne that before the year was at an end, I should repent of what Morvilliers had said to you. You have been as good as your word, and much before your time has expired. End quote. Louis returned to Conflans several times during the course of these negotiations, and at least once he was even joined by Charles's least favourite person in the world, the Lord of Croy. We'll let Monstrelet pick up this part of the story. Quote, During this truce, the Lord of Croy and his friends were at Paris and laboured most diligently to make their peace with the Count of Charolais. Even the king exerted himself greatly in their favour, but the count would not listen to nor talk of it, as the Lord of Croy had once accompanied the king to Conflans. But the Count of Charolais ordered him not to come thither again, end quote. The duke-in-waiting was evidently stepping into his new role with an authority that the other power brokers around were forced to recognise, and it is amusing to consider the sycophantic eagerness with which the Lord of Croy attempted to return into the folds of Burgundian favour. 
and of how Charles basically told him to get stuffed. Once again, however, Charles was proving himself to be a different man than his father, and not one to forgive and compromise. He was all about honour, and holding grudges against those he perceived had wronged him. Throughout the negotiations, Burgundian military actions continued in the region of the Somme. By the time the Treaty of Conflans was signed on the 5th of October 1465, the guy who Louis had given control of the region to, John II, the Count of Nevers, Charles's cousin once removed, had actually been captured by Burgundian forces in the town of Peron. In the treaty, Louis XI ceded greatly to Charles's desires and demands and threw John II right under the carriage, stating, quote, We will cause and effectually procure our most dear and beloved cousin, the Count of Nevers, to transfer and make over to our said cousin and brother, the Count of Charolais, all that right which he hath or pretends to have to these castles, towns, provost ships, and chatelainies, and he shall surrender all that he possesses therein and give possession thereof to our said brother and cousin, the Count of Charolais. End quote. Ouch, that is a pretty harsh way to treat someone who had swapped allegiances to help you. The upshot of it all was that the right to those Somme towns, as well as Boulogne and Guyenne, was once again given to the Duke of Burgundy and would remain in their possession until at least the end of Charles's life. Welcome back, Somme towns. You are no longer French. Charles had gotten what he wanted. The other nobles of France were also placated and everybody conveniently forgot that they had supposedly been fighting for the public good. While these negotiations were ongoing, Charles's wife, Isabella of Bourbon, died. In her book, Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy, Ruth Putnam wrote, quote, During his absence, the Countess of Charolais had died and been buried at Antwerp. Charles is repeatedly lauded for his perfect faithfulness to his wife, but her death seems to have made singularly little ripple on the surface of his life. The chroniclers touch on the event very casually, laying more stress on the opportunity it gave Louis XI to offer his daughter Anne as her successor than on the event itself. End quote. Once again, history often remembers a woman for little more than her ability to reproduce. Isabella of Bourbon's defining act having been to have given birth to Charles's only surviving child, Mary of Burgundy. Interestingly, however, a century after her death, Isabella's tomb in Antwerp would be destroyed by iconoclasts during the Reformation. Ten of 24 small statues of her grieving ancestors from her tomb would show up another hundred years later, when they were purchased by the mayors of Amsterdam who mistook them for depictions of the counts and countesses of Holland. Today, they can be found in the Rijksmuseum. So, if your life's ambition like ours is to one day be tangentially remembered inside that cultural heart of Dutch history and culture, and you, like us, and Isabella of Bourbon, have also failed to do much of note, then never fear. There's always still a chance in, like, 300 years. Speaking of lofty ambitions, it is time for us to continue funding our dream of being able to live from podcasting by playing an ad break. If you don't enjoy ads, then you can always join the Order of the Golden Patreon pledge. It is not exclusive, and you will avoid all ads in the future. As for us, we will see you on the other side, where our pumped-up Charles will return to the Low Countries to take some serious vengeance on the citizens of Dinant for insulting his mother. Furthermore to that, believe it or not, Philip the Good will finally go away. For good. See you on the other side. Welcome to So, while the War of the Public Wheel had been going on in France, the conflict between Louis XI and Charles the Bold had begun seeping into more localised issues and conflicts in the Low Countries, particularly in the Prince Bishopric of Liège. We are all intimately aware that the people of Liège were a rebellious bunch, as we have explored in previous episodes, 
and as mentioned in episode 27, they had not reacted happily to the appointment of Louis of Bourbon, a nephew of Philip the Good, as the new Prince Bishop. You may recall that upon hearing the news that he had been appointed, the people of Liège forced him into exile in Maastricht. In retaliation, he excommunicated them all, whereupon the person bringing the news of this excommunication was made to eat the paper the message had been written on. Small uprisings and great rumbles of discontent had been pervading the towns of Liège since then, and in early 1465, a new revolutionary government was installed to take over from the exiled bishop. So with Charles distracted by events in France, rebellious factions in Liège were actively being supported by the French king. In a treaty signed between Louis XI and this new government of Liège in June 1465, he encouraged them to go back and attack nearby Burgundian-controlled towns, as well as promising them military support, which would arrive any day now. One of the main towns of the Prince Bishopric was Dinant, which lay on the Meuse River and was an important site on the trade route between Cologne and Paris. Some old chroniclers claim that Dinant was bigger and more prosperous than the city of Liège itself, though this is no doubt exaggeration. Nonetheless, it was an important commercial town, and its influence stretched way beyond the bounds of the territory it sat in. It was famous for metallurgy, and particularly in the working of brass and copper goods. Dinanderie even became a widely used term for pots and pans in the region, and beyond. Dinant had a presence in other trading towns, such as London, where they enjoyed the equivalent privileges as that most dominant of commercial operations at the time, the Hanseatic League. Just a couple of hundred meters further down the river from Dinant, on the opposite bank, lay the town of Bouvines in the Burgundian-controlled county of Namur. It was Bouvines which became the focus of Dinant's ire towards the Burgundians. To quote Philip de Camayne, quote, The inhabitants of Dinant had besieged the town of Bouvines on the other side of the river, before which they had lain for the space of eight months, committed several acts of hostilities, and bombarded it continually with two brass and other great pieces of cannon, battering the houses about their ears, and forcing the inhabitants to shelter themselves in their cellars and caves, where they continued during the whole siege. It is impossible to imagine the deadly hatred that these two towns had conceived one against the other, yet their children married frequently together, there being no other towns for any consideration in that neighborhood. End quote. Quite frankly, I think that's hilarious. They absolutely hated each other, but they had to keep on marrying one another because there was nobody else nearby. It's like, it's like that stereotype of marriage backwards. The rivalry between them becomes slightly less hilarious, however, when you realize how much destruction it is going to lead to very shortly. After the Battle of Montlhéry, the first reports which arrived in Dinant in the confusion of that battle actually heralded a French victory, as well as the death of the hated Burgundian heir apparent, Charles. People in Dinant were stoked, and though it is generally agreed that these people did not represent the whole diversity of views and opinions in the town, a group of them decided that they would nonetheless take on a representative role for their town, and constructed an effigy of Charles the Bold. This they took to Bevines, where they proceeded to hang the prince's likeness in full view of Bevines town gates. Monstrelet quotes them as shouting out to the Burgundian loyalists in Bouvines, quote, See here the son of your duke, that false traitor, the Count of Charolais, whom the King of France will have hanged as you see his representative hanging here. He called himself the son of your duke. He lied, for he was a mean bastard, changed in his infancy for the son of our bishop, Lord de Heisenberg, end quote. By doing such a thing, this Denantian rabble was making a pretty bold claim and offending a whole lot of people who they probably shouldn't have been. Firstly, saying that Charles, who they thought was dead, was a bastard, was saying that he did not have claim to any of his father's domains. Secondly, 
It implied that Isabella of Portugal had not been as chaste as her reputation suggested, but rather that she was a promiscuous and disloyal harlot. As you can imagine, when Charles, not dead and in Confinant, and those in the Burgundian court heard about this outrage, well, they were outraged. Charles soon became keen to depart France and to join up with troops that his father was sending to Liège so that they could all just seek some revenge on the rebels there. When word reached the people of Liège, who were by no means all on side with the inflammatory anti-Burgundian actions that some in Dinant had taken, anxiety and fear took a hold on the population. An embassy was sent to Philip the Good in Brussels, begging the old duke to grant them the promise of peace and protection from the imminent retribution of his son. Philip gave them 15 days. When this truce came down, Charles was already in Liège territory, leading one of the biggest armies that had ever been assembled in the region. He upheld his father's order, however, and forbade his troops from ravaging any Liégeois property. As such, there was a small period in which hungry Burgundian soldiers were forced to cross into actual Burgundian-ruled territory and ransack whatever provisions they could, to the terror of the common folk. After the 15 days expired, the truce was extended a few more times, meaning that it was not until the 12th of January 1466 that Charles, fed up with the typical magnanimity his father was showing towards the Liegeois, wrote to him to request more troops and to state that he was going to push forth and take the rebellious Liegeois down. Philip sent troops, including the Duke of Savoy, and wrote to Charles to say that he would also be joining and would prefer deferment of battle until he had arrived. Before he could arrive, however, on the 20th of January, the Liegeois managed to muster together a big enough sum of money and an embassy that could convince Charles to not destroy them and their towns. The terms were extremely unfavourable to the prospects and tradition of Liegeois autonomy, but extremely favourable for the preservation of their lives. By agreeing to pay 600,000 Rhenish florins over the next six years, and that the Duke of Brabant and all his successors would hold governorship over Liège, war was averted, and an end to hostilities, known as the Piteous Peace, was manufactured. But all was definitely not peaceful. During this time, Charles had based himself in the town of Saint-Tron, one of the biggest towns of Liège, which had surrendered to him almost instantly upon his army's arrival. Following the truce on the 22nd of January, some of his men, under the command of his brother Anthony, the bastard of Burgundy, were passing through Saint-Tron when they were set upon by some of its citizens. Two of the soldiers were killed. We have seen before how disastrous it can be for an army contingent to get ambushed within the confines of a town, but the remaining soldiers took quick and smart action, making their way to the town square, bringing themselves into formation, and steadily advancing upon the angry mob. Soon, according to Monstrelet anyway, around 20 of the rioters were dead, and the rest were fleeing from these experienced and hardened killers. Apparently, their bloodlust was soon up, and only Charles issuing direct orders that they cease, stop them from going on a violent rampage of the town, entering people's houses, and butchering them in their homes. So things were on a precipice all over Liège. With this peace agreed upon but definitely frail, Charles then left for Brabant and went to Brussels to see his father. He made a brief pilgrimage, as one does, and did a quick tour of some of the important Flemish towns. Meanwhile, those amongst the Liegeois who had agreed to the disastrous peace terms soon began to feel repercussions, with at least one of them hung by his fellow citizens for agreeing to them. The discontent became more and more evident, to cap this off, the unpopular Burgundian puppet-slash-bishop, Louis of Bourbon, was once more rejected. By the middle of the year, it had become clear to both Philip and Charles that they would need to exert their military strength in a way that they had not six months earlier, and the target of that action would be the town which had so offended Charles and the reputation of his mother, Dinant. 
Dinant had, in fact, been left out of the piteous peace altogether. Dinant's reputation was now wedded to the base actions of those who had made the public exhibition of hanging the effigy of Charles. Most of the people in the city had nothing to do with the offence and would have had a far greater preference for stability and economic growth than they did for raising the ire of the most powerful and violent people around. But when Dinant was left out of the peace terms given to the rest of Liège, the people there would have had several months of sheer anxiety while they awaited the potential consequences for the actions of those in that outspoken mob. There would have been many different opinions of what to do and different factions forming behind those opinions. As is its way, fear would have made many susceptible to any idea that could maybe get them out of this mess. A letter sent by the magistrates of the town to Philip the Good in March puts the level of anxiety on full display. Quote, The poor, humble, and obedient servants and subjects of the most reverend father in God, Louis of Bourbon, Bishop of Liège, and your petty neighbours and borderers, the Burgomaster's Council and Folk of Dinant, humbly declare that it has come to their knowledge that the wrath of your grace has been aroused against the town on account of certain ill words spoken by some of the inhabitants thereof, in contempt of your honourable person. The city is as displeased about these words as it is possible to be, and far from wishing to excuse the culprits, has arrested as many as could be found, and now holds them in durance, awaiting any punishment your grace may decree. As heartily and as lovingly as possible, to your petitioners beseech your grace to permit your anger to be appeased, holding the people of Dinant exonerated and resting satisfied with the punishment of the guilty, inasmuch as the people are bitterly grieved on account of the insults and have, as before stated, arrested the culprits. End quote. Monstrelet, on the other hand, tells us that during the spring months spent waiting on the Burgundian Duke and heir's response to the slurs made against them, quote, those of Dinant, having their courage puffed up by those more inclined to war than peace, suffered many evil-disposed persons that had been banished, returned to their town, who were eager for all kinds of mischief. They soon after sallied out of Dinant and overran and pillaged many villages in Hanau and Namur, which they afterwards burned, violated churches and monasteries, committing, in short, every wickedness. The Duke of Burgundy, on hearing this, instantly ordered a greater assembly of men-at-arms than he had ever before made, to be at Namur on the 28th of July. End quote. Dinant's punishment was clearly of high importance to the Burgundian clan. Not only was Charles's honour at stake, but so too was the perceived virtue of his mother. She had been residing for years in a quiet convent, remaining uninvolved in politics. 19th century French historian Louis Prosper Gachard cited, however apocryphal this may be, her rumoured reaction to the disgrace which Dinant had brought upon her character. Quote, were it to cost her all she were worth, she would lay the city in ruins and put every living being in it to the sword. End quote. When Charles set out to put the town to siege in August, one concern was whether those in Liège who felt an affinity for Dinant and carried a generational hatred of Burgundian authority would themselves sally forth and take the fight to the besieging army. Dinant certainly hoped they would sending letters to the magistracy in Liège and pleading for assistance. Apparently, the Liègeois responded to the pleas with assurances. Quote, Don't trouble yourselves about this. We have only to take good order, and we shall soon raise the siege. End quote. No doubt aware of this possibility, Charles did not tarry in his proceedings. Soon, his old and frail father Philip had also joined him, having been put on a litter and brought via the waterways to Bouvines to be able to get a first-hand view of the upcoming scene. Monstrelet's chronicles report that the Dinantes obstinately stuck by their convictions in the lead-up to and commencement of the siege, which began on the 19th of August. The Dinantes apparently responded to the Duke of Burgundy's request for their surrender by saying, quote, 
What has put it in the head of that old dotard, your duke, to come hither and die? Has he lived long enough to come and die here miserably? And your count, little Charlie, what? He is come to lay his bones here also? Let him return to Montlhery and combat the king of France, who will come to our succour. Do not think that he will fail in the promise he has made us. Charlie is come hither in an unlucky hour. He has too yellow a beak, and the liegeois will soon make him dislodge with shame. End quote. That's fantastic. Just some A-grade cheering. And actually, speaking of jeering, that brings us to today's Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The English word jeer comes from the Middle Dutch word gieren, which means to cry, to roar, to shriek, or to whistle. Gieren is also the modern Dutch word for vulture. And after the jeers of these dinantes, the vultures would have been metaphorically circling the town. But there you go, jeering. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Despite these fighting words, the people of Dinant could not withstand long. By the 22nd, a breach had been opened up in the defences, and by the 25th, the Burgundian army was strolling through the streets, and Burgundian soldiers being foisted upon the obligatory hospitality of terrified Dinantes. Seemingly, Charles and Philip put a moratorium on any violence or plunder by their troops. The Count and Duke themselves retired to hold council in nearby Bouvines to discuss and decide what to do. The Burgundian rulers decided upon the complete sacking and destruction of Dinant. Can you imagine that? Waiting for days for that kind of decision to come down. They set a schedule, almost like a company-wide team-building camp. On Thursday and Friday, we will have the orientation sacking. This will be done in an organized fashion and we will be assessing your ability to work together in your teams while you steal everything of value, which of course will be collected and distributed by management. On Saturday, we will all celebrate our achievements over the first two days and celebrate our team unity with a barbecue and massive bonfire. Of course, for the many different and common people of Dinant, there was nothing jovial about this. Many of the most extreme elements within their society and those who probably had the most to fear from repercussions to their anti-Burgundian actions had likely all fled the town when possible and left their fellow and less culpable citizens to deal with whatever was coming. Although many of the anxious and remaining denunters would have hoped that somebody would come and relieve them, whether it be the people of Liège or some allied noble willing to take on the Burgundians, of course nobody did. We don't know how different individuals found out about the weekend programming that would see their town and lives destroyed, but some reports state that the soldiers being quartered in local houses caught word and could not contain their patience, setting about looting, killing and pillaging those with whom they've been put up with immediately. Violence against women was made punishable by death by Charles, but three of his troops were caught breaking this law. As punishment, they were marched before the entire army three times and then hung before everyone. All women and children were ordered to vacate the town and were then promptly escorted to Liège. Most of them would not see anybody else from the town alive again. Without being able to contain the avariciousness of his men, Charles had little choice but to have as much of the loot hastily retrieved and carried to safety as possible. Monstrelet tells us that the common looting soldiers had a lot of success. Quote, The Tuesday, Thursday and Friday were wholly employed in plundering, and boatloads of effects were on the river, and the streets were crowded with wagons full of goods, and every man was carrying off on his back all that he could bear. Many of the men-at-arms gained riches enough to support them for three or four years. End quote. Throughout this systematic rampage, Charles also commenced on the justice and punishment part of the whole endeavour. An investigation was made into who among those remaining had been complicit in the grave offence to his family's honour. Quote, Some were discovered who were tied back to back and thrown into the mews where they perished. That's the river. The Count ordered the chief cannoneer of the town to be arrested and hung on the mountain above the church, 
and those who had been most culpable in renewing the war to be drowned in the river. End quote. In the early morning hours of Thursday 28th of August, a fire broke out near the Notre Dame Cathedral in the middle of Dinant. Despite Charles ordering it to be extinguished immediately, the fire soon ran out of control and threatened everything in the town. What Charles's troops cared most about, besides themselves, was that the remaining loot be saved from the conflagration. Many monasteries, churches, and convents were destroyed, with many of their relics and idols perishing despite Charles's best efforts to save as many as he could. Montserrat says, quote, The Count of Charolais, observing that all attempts to put out the fire were ineffectual, determined that the whole should be destroyed and caused such parts in the town and suburbs as had hitherto escaped to be set on fire, so that all was burnt. End quote. So it was that Dinant was completely destroyed. One monk from Liège, cited by Gachard, visited the smouldering ruins afterwards. Quote, the only thing I found entire in the whole city was an altar. Besides this, I found an image, marvellous to tell, almost unharmed by the flames, a very beautiful image of Our Lady, which was left all alone at the portal church. End quote. I love that. The only thing I found was this, besides this miraculous thing as well. So total was the destruction of this great town, famous for its mastery in metalworking, that it would never recoup its former grandeur. Afterwards, the remaining artisans moved to other towns, most of the copper and brass masters re-establishing themselves in Mechelen. The contemporary chronicler Jacques Duclerc, after some conjecture that the fate of Dinant could best be explained by simply being the unknowable will of God, concluded the entire episode with the words, Si fus Dinant. Dinant was. Despite the destruction of Dinant, the fires of rebellion in Liège against the Dukes of Burgundy had not yet been put out, and the Liège wars would rage for a couple more years. The remarkably violent wrath unleashed against Dinant would not, in fact, even be the worst of it, if you can imagine that. But the next conflagration would be directed against a new Duke of Burgundy, because in Bruges, on the 16th of June, 1467, Philip the Good would finally shake off his mortal coil after almost 71 years. Considering how much he loved an extravagant banquet, that's a pretty good innings indeed. The details of the final days of Philip the Good's life have been recorded in exquisite detail in a letter written by the royal apothecary, Polly Boulon sent to the mayor of Lille to inform him of the news of the Duke's death. As we mentioned earlier, Philip's physical state had markedly declined towards the end of his life as he suffered from various illnesses, the effects of which made it hard for him to travel throughout his territories. Despite his poor health, however, he seems to have been still completely with it mentally up until the end, with Boulogne remarking how Philip had, quote, made good cheer and was as happy as ever throughout last week, often chatting and joking with others, myself among them, end quote. Boulland writes how Philip spent his final Friday doing what he had usually been doing, taking a nap, drinking almond milk, watching other people work. How very millennial of him. After retiring for the evening, however, Philip suffered some kind of congestive attack, which most historians think was from pneumonia. We'll let Boulan tell the story because I could not do it justice. And if you are squeamish, here be warned. Quote, At two o'clock after midnight, a quantity of phlegm gathered in his throat and he was so troubled by this that it seemed he would die then. By frequent insertion of a finger in his throat, much of this was ejected. But he was in great difficulty and soon afterwards developed a high temperature which continued from 6am on Saturday until Monday evening at nine, when he gave his soul to God. And I certify you that the good prince died because of the phlegm which descended from his brain to his throat and blocked the passages so that he could only breathe with great effort. He was in pain for 12 hours on the brink of death. The grief of my lord, his son, when he entered the room and saw him struggling thus in the utmost agony was indescribable. 
my lord of Tonai, arrived soon after his death and renewed the grief of all of us with his lamentations. Today, my lord, being Philip, whom God pardoned, has been placed on his bed between two sheets, as if he were alive and the public has been permitted to come and see him. He looked as if he was asleep with half-smiling face, but he was deadly pale, and no one had the heart to look at him for long. As the public filed past, the lamentations and moaning which the wretched people made, large and small alike, has continued from the hour of his death till the day following, at 3pm at which time the autopsy was carried out, his heart removed, also the intestines, liver, lungs and spleen, and the body embalmed and made ready to be taken wherever it pleases my lord his son. And to let you know the true state of his body, his liver was healthy and clean, the spleen was all decomposed and in pieces together with the part of the lung touching it, and the heart was the most perfect ever seen, small and in good condition. When my lord was opened, he was found to have two fingers thickness of fat on his ribs. His head was opened to see the brain because some doctors maintained that he had a tumour on the brain, but this was by no means the case, for he was found clean and as perfect as has ever been seen. End quote. Gross. That is one way to go. It would seem that finally the great Duke of the West had come across a revolting phlegm that he could not pacify. Philip the Good, the man with the brain as clean and as perfect as had ever been seen, ruled as Duke of Burgundy for just short of 50 years. Over the course of his reign, Philip had overseen a massive expansion of the Burgundian realm, adding the territories of Namur, Holland, Hanno, Zeeland, Brabant, Limburg, Luxembourg, and Friesland to his collection though nobody had told the Frisians about this, as well as making sure that his family members or puppets controlled the ecclesiastical domains of his area, such as the bishoprics of Utrecht and Liège. He had managed to acquire this power for himself by using political cunning and diplomacy, throwing around wads of cash to get what he wanted and, quite frankly, with the help of a whole lot of luck in the form of convenient people dying at convenient times. With his patronage of the arts, he turned the Burgundian court into the centre of high culture in Europe, with enough splendour and magnificence in his ceremonies to eclipse what you would see in most royal courts of the time. Indeed, he had also played a defining role in the major conflict of his time, that between France and England, and although he might not have worn a crown himself, he certainly played as big a part in the political affairs of his lifetime as anybody who did. Furthermore, in a world that we have seen put a great emphasis on things like the esteem of personal honour, and in which threats to honour and power structures were often met with violent responses, Philip, it must be said, showed from a young age his capacity to compromise especially when it came to rebellious subjects and to use mercy as a practical tool when it suited him. This cannot be said of too many late medieval rulers in Europe, but despite these soaring heights towards which he had helped catapult the status of Burgundy, Philip's reign was a failure in a few critical ways. The most obvious is that despite being married three times and being the father to literally dozens of bastard children, Philip had only managed to raise one legitimate heir, Charles, with whom he had clashed so acrimoniously that for a critical period in the final decade of his rule, he had basically forced his son into exile, the two not even being on speaking terms with one another. It's one thing to be able to collect loads of titles for yourself but if you're not able to ensure that those titles are going to be kept together in trustworthy hands after your death, then you've ultimately failed the most important test of a feudal ruler, to create a long-lasting dynasty with the hallmark of stability. Secondly, Philip struggled to find a solution to the same problem which had plagued the Low Countries since the times of Middle Francia, which is how to deal with being surrounded by big and hungry neighbours. Immediately after switching sides in the conflict between England and France with the Treaty of Arras, 
Philip had found himself facing an ever more confident and powerful France, whose kings would try their hardest to undermine him in any and every way. His personal obsession with the idea of a crusade to the east, which he failed to ever put together, made him give up those vitally important Somme towns to Louis XI, which sparked the events that led the Estates General to step into the sphere of political decision-making in his realms and force a mediation between father and son. Philip also failed in terms of his international relations with the empire. He undoubtedly felt that he was entitled to a crown and the independence that came with kingship, but he only ever managed to receive unsatisfying offers of one over places like Friesland. Nothing against Friesland, but yeah, they don't need a king. Which, this brings us to the final point. Despite everything, Philip was never able to turn the Burgundian realm into a single unified state. Sure, there had been attempts to create more centralized institutions such as the Great Council and to draw the territories together by things such as a common currency. This was expansive enough for historians to long recognize Philip as a centralizer, but at his death, he was still in reality just the count or duke of a bunch of small and separate areas. Indeed, people in many of those areas still actively resisted his rule, as we have seen in this episode in Liège and in the ever so many uprisings in the Flemish cities that we've covered. Charles, the new duke, is himself going to become obsessed with the idea of claiming a crown and ruling a single state. In his pursuit of this, he will pave a road upon which the metaphorical car of Burgundian dukedom will plough head-on into a wall of obliteration. But before getting busy with dynastic implosion, Charles will first get to work putting his stamp on things, laying his father to rest in grand symbolic fashion and mercilessly crushing the ongoing uprising in Liège. Charles the Bold was a man who had many lofty ambitions. But little did he know that he would be the final Valois Duke of Burgundy. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You might have heard some different background noises in this episode. Things like moped and motorbike engines or washing machines or even Julian. Hello. Yes, that's right. Because, well, I've just moved house and don't have our quiet little recording sanctuary anymore. So we're recording at Julian's place now, in the same room, again. Woo! Take that, Corona. Screw you, Corona. But we have noticed there are some background noises, and we do have plans to remedy this, to ensure the high sound fidelity that you are all used to. And we will do that ASAP, with thanks to the very kind contribution made by our good friend and honorary Amsterdamer, Joe Watts. It's thanks to the help of people like Joe and another great supporter, Jos van Ometer, as well as all of our Patreon supporters that we've been able to, yeah, convince our girlfriends that we do in fact still have jobs during the corona crisis and why we've been able to also keep it going. It feels crass to say, but every euro, dollar and cent counts. So thank you guys so much. The best way to help us out is by joining our esteemed and completely non-exclusive club, the Order of the Golden Patreon Pledge. Go to www.patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands to join up, where for a buck a show you can get early access to ad-free versions of the podcast. If you want to give us more than a buck a show, you'll get bonus servings of our eternal love and gratitude. We reckon that's a bargain. So it's time for us to give a shout out and recognition to our newest members of the Order, First of all, Diane Dacker's Frendak, self-proclaimed 16th century history nerd. Dacker's, you'll be happy to know that at this rate, and having just reached 1467, we're only like 200 episodes away from reaching the 16th century. Finally, we'd also like to thank the Duke of Berry Viersum, the paterfamilias of a whole boatload of extremely smart, kind, and friendly history and archaeology buffs. The Duke and his family came on a boat ride with me through Amsterdam's canals via, of course, our second favorite local operation, those damn boat guys. 
No, actually, I'm going to say, I like them more than us. Our favourite local operation. If you're in the Netherlands in the plague-ridden summer of 2020, come on a socially distant but socially awesome boat ride and tell them that the History of the Netherlands podcast sent you. Go to www.tdbg, those damn boat guys, tdbg.nl. Finally, follow us on Twitter, at History of NL. Shoot us any and every piece of feedback, all your love or your unsolicited advice. Unless your unsolicited advice and feedback is to say we post too much about cricket, because if that's what you think, you're wrong. We should post more. In fact, we're going to go and watch a game right now. So, go West Indies. Yeah, it does feel awkward saying that from a History of the Netherlands podcast, but we'll get to that in like 500 episodes. Anyway, cheers. Dewey. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.